Well, good morning, church. Aw, by name even. It is so good to be with you guys this morning. Now, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Rod Klinger, and my lovely wife, Dasha, and I have attended this church and called it our home for more than 17 years now. My wonderful children have grown up right here, and in fact, y'all helped pray them into existence, um, for which we are forever grateful to you. If you are a visitor here, I'd like to give you a big welcome. Our hope for you um, today is that you are going to meet Jesus and that you're going to feel welcome here, just as you are, no changes, right? We don't think you're here by accident, but we do think that God has something really good for you this morning. If this is your first, second, or third time meeting or coming here, we would like to connect with you. You should have been given a card that looks a little bit like this when you came in. The Connect card is a great way for us to get to know you. A, you know what? One of the things about middle age that I really hate is that I cannot see anymore, and I've been wondering, this is right at the place where I can't see. Let's go this way. Oh, wow. Now I can't see you, but I can see my notes. Okay, so we've got this Connect card thing we were talking about. It's going to sound a little better now. Again, I can't see you, but this is great. Um, For every Connect card that gets turned in, what we're going to do is we're going to donate $5 to Project Just Because, which is right next door to us. And that is a really worthy organization that gives food, clothing, and other aid to families in need in our area. So we would love it if you would fill it out, turn it in at the welcome desk, and one of our pastoral types would love to talk with you this morning. Now, as Bernadette mentioned, we are working our way through the Lord's Prayer, which is recorded in the books of Matthew chapter 6, and in Luke chapter 11, we're basing our sermon series loosely on a booklet that the Vineyard put out called, appropriately, The Lord's Prayer. Last week we had a bunch of these available for free. I have been informed that they are sold out. You're stuck, but I'll give you my copy if you want. They're great booklets. I would bet that most of us, or many of us anyway, learned the Lord's Prayer as kids right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I grew up kind of a heathen, actually, but I knew this prayer. For those who did not grow up reciting the prayer, we have been reciting different versions of it and discussing different parts of it over the last few weeks. That may be a little bit confusing to you. I know that Rob recited the traditional version with you a couple of weeks ago, And Stephen recited a slightly more, well, a more updated version of it last week with you. The different translations will render the prayer ever so slightly differently, but it's really the same prayer. This week I would like us to recite the version that's in the New King James translation, the the New King James translation. It's understandable, it's accurate, it's poetic, And the NKJV is still one of my favorite go-to translations. So if you could put that up on the screen, Jesus introduces it saying, in this manner, therefore, pray. 
Let's say it together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I love this prayer. In the New Testament, Jesus taught this prayer twice. In the Gospel according to Matthew, the context for his teaching was the Sermon on the Mount. In that sermon, he's telling his listeners to be humble and sincere when praying, and also when giving and when fasting. He says, don't be like the hypocrites. They're just putting on a show to grab attention. Rather, go into your room, shut your door, and pray along these lines. And the Lord, who hears what you say in secret, will reward you openly. That last line is amazing. The Lord, who hears what is in secret, will reward you openly? Wow, sign me up for that. Now, the book of Luke has a slightly different slant on it. Jesus has just returned from praying, and one of his disciples asks, Lord, teach us to pray just like John the Baptist taught his disciples. Now, I think this one's kind of funny. Um, you know, it's the only time that the disciples ever ask Jesus to teach them anything. So you kind of have to ask, why this? Why prayer? It might be that the disciple noticed how intimate Jesus was with the Father and that he wanted to know the secret of that intimacy. That's what the, the Vineyard booklet proposes. But it might also be that he thought John had given his disciples kind of the inside scoop. And he wanted to keep up with the Johnses, as it were. You know, knowing the disciples, I almost think it's the second explanation. And he probably expected that Jesus would give him a special, deeper prayer than what he taught in the Sermon on the Mount, kind of the uh, special disciples-only version. You know, you really want to get stuff done? Here's how you do it. But Jesus gave him basically the same thing. There is no special inside scoop. And that's because, in part, what Jesus was giving him was really a loosely structured prayer model. Here's the structure. Number one, focus on God. Realize that he loves you and he wants to be close to you, praise him because the king of the universe has asked you to call him Abba, Father, Daddy. Then eagerly ask for his kingdom to come and his will to be done because those things are good. Now, I say eagerly because in Greek they're using the imperative tense of the verb. It's not, may your kingdom come. You know, we, we always kind of, mm, your kingdom come, or may your kingdom come. It's not that. It's come, kingdom of God. Be hallowed, name of God. Be done, your will. We want to get in line with that. We want to cry out for God to do His work here, today. Now, of course, 
you want to let him know what you want and what you need. Realize that he cares deeply for you and he's going to provide everything that you need. If you have things that are getting in the way of you and God, if you need to repent of something, if you need to get some business out there on the table with God, do that. If you need to forgive somebody because they've done something bad to you, do that. Then ask God to keep you close and not to let anything tear you away from his love. And finally, bring it full circle and realize that God is in charge. He's able to do all of these things. That's a really powerful strategy for prayer. Now, Jesus didn't necessarily intend for us to recite the words of the prayer just the way that we just recited it, or at least he didn't want to limit us to those words. After all, he does want us to pour out our hearts to him, and he eagerly desires to connect with us. So using this as a loose structure for prayer really just makes sure that we cover all the important ground and that we don't limit ourselves to what... I don't know how you are, but I typically lob grenades into heaven. Oh, God, do this. Oh, God, do that. Oh, God, help so-and-so. Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, God. This helps us to have a, a wider perspective on the kingdom of God. But reciting the Lord's Prayer together is a powerful and a wonderful thing. And the church has been reciting it that way since the beginning. There's something really amazing and awesome that happens when God's people focus on him and call out to him together. So, Rob was planning this series of sermons, and you'll notice he broke it into three pieces, right? Two weeks ago, Rob taught the beginning of the prayer, and he talked about how God wants us to be his children, He invites us into close relationship with him, calling him Abba, Father, even Daddy. It's very intimate. Last week, Stephen was talking about God as provider. Give us our daily bread and forgiver. Now, realize forgiveness is huge in the kingdom of God. You cannot be not forgiving and be in the kingdom. Not only does God forgive us, but God requires us to forgive each other. It is not an option. This week, I'm talking about the rest of the prayer. That's the ask God to keep you close part. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, I I don't know if you notice this. I love to pray that last line. I really do. God, the victorious one. God, who will reign forever. God, the powerful one. You know, the Greek word that's translated power is dunamis. That's also where we get the English word dynamite. God, the dynamite in our midst. That's cool. God, come be the dynamite in our midst. When I'm on the worship team and we're praying before the service, I love to hang out with this idea. You know, Lord, it's about you. Lord, you are glorious. Lord, your name is wonderful. Lord, may your name be glorious here today. Now, for those of you with a Bible, 
or on your smartphone, if you look at the prayer, you might not even have that last line. That's kind of too bad. But that's because most translators think it was an early addition for the text. It wasn't in the original, and that it was used as part of the liturgy of the early church. But it's so cool. And it's totally consistent, not only with what Jesus prayed, but with the Jewish prayer in the time of Jesus. So personally, I'm going to keep saying it. And for those of you to whom this speaks, you should keep saying it too, even if it's not there. It's a footnote, actually. You know, you'll see a little A, some translations say. Yeah. Right? Got it. The part about temptation is a little bit less pleasant to talk about normally, but it's important, so we're going to dive into it anyway. You ready? Oh, that sounded tentative. You ready? Cool. All right, let's look at those first two lines. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. It's important to realize that do not lead us into temptation and deliver us from the evil one are two parts of the same sentence. You can't separate them from each other. The conjunction but connects them both in Greek and in English, and it means kind of instead of or on the other hand, you know, it's a Hebrew literary strategy that's called parallelism, where the second statement actually amplifies the first statement. Remember that the New Testament was written by Jewish people, so even though it was written in the Greek language, we should expect that we'll find some Hebrew stylizations here. In English, you could almost flip it around and say, deliver us from the evil one so that we might not be led into temptation. Now, again, some translations will say just deliver us from evil, like it's some kind of generic form of badness. But the actual Greek grammar is pretty specific. Deliver us from the evil one. The evil one is also called Satan, or the tempter, or the accuser, and he is real. He hates everything about God's plan. He hates everything about God's people, and he hates everything about God's church, and he wants nothing more than to trip us up. I, I could easily trip off this to demonstrate it, but I won't. He wants nothing more than to trip us up and to keep us from living like God's free and forgiven people. I love the way R.C. Sproul puts it. He says, Satan seeks to do everything he can to paralyze believers with unresolved guilt. And, you know, some of God's people do walk around like that. Um, you know, me as often as anybody, really. Like, oh, I screwed that up. I didn't do that well enough. I'm just basically worthless. That is the strategy. It's not Jesus' strategy. So what do we do about this Satan cat? Um, well, you, you need to be aware of him, be aware of those schemes, and not freak out. There's actually some good news in here. Jesus thinks you're worth a lot. Jesus has overturned the works of the evil one, and on the cross, Jesus forever conquered Satan, and he continues to pour out forgiveness on each one of us each day.
We're free because of what Jesus did. He resolves all of that unresolved guilt, and he does not want us dragging it along with us. Even if the guilt is caused by real sin, Jesus has taken care of it. We have to turn from the sin, of course, but his blood washes away all of the guilt. In the book of 1 John, chapter 1, verse 9, it says, But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. So when we pray, deliver us from the evil one, we're asking Jesus to do what only Jesus can do. He is indeed our deliverer who can and has set us free, and we need not and we should not carry around a load of guilt. He has delivered us from that. Now, the part that says, do not lead us into temptation, should I hope strike you as peculiar? Why would God lead us into temptation? Isn't God supposed to be good to us? Well, in the book of James, chapter 1, it's pretty clear that God doesn't actually tempt anyone. James says instead that the temptation comes when our own desires set a trap for us and drag us away. The image he uses is one of seduction. These seductive desires inside of us lure us away into a trap. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that those temptations are common to mankind. Furthermore, God won't let us be tempted beyond what we can bear, but when we're tempted, he'll also give us a way out should we choose to use it. So why then should we even pray, lead us not into temptation? It turns out the Greek word that gets translated temptation is the Greek word parasmos, and it can have two different meanings. Don't you hate that? <laughs> it's better than English, where a word has like about 10 different meanings. But the first meaning here is temptation, as in enticement to sin. And the second is a test or a trial, as in proving one's virtue. It actually can mean both things at the same time. And the only way that you know exactly what it's supposed to mean in any given usage is by the context immediately around it. That makes it kind of tricky to translate, and so different translations flip back and forth between the different words that are used for it. Realize that God will never entice anyone to sin. That's just not the way he works. He will, however, allow our faith to be tested. His objective there is not to destroy us, but to strengthen our faith and to deepen our relationship with him. But that test can turn into a rather nasty tempt if we let it. In fact, life is full of tests and trials. They're inevitable. Actually, I don't know about you, but I was thinking about this as I was writing this up. It's like it, life would be pretty boring without a few tests and trials. Um, so, for instance, you might stumble into a boatload of money. It's a test. It could make you humble and generous, and it could make you stingy and arrogant. You might have read about Mavis Wanchek, who won the $758 million Powerball 
all herself this past Wednesday night. Any, anyone read about that? You know that that's going to be a trial and temptation for her? It's a trial and temptation I wouldn't mind having myself. <laughs> she said that her first move is going to be to hide out in bed. But I pray that once she finally gets out of bed, that it will make her outrageously humble and generous. Now, the guy that sold the winning ticket to her, that store is also going to get $50,000. The owner of the store said he's going to give that all away to local charities. Bravo. That's the way it should be. But uh, the point here is that we're always going to have trials and temptations, and they can either bring us closer to God or they can drive us away from God. If we have a trial and we choose the not God option, it's not God's fault, and it's not the trial's fault. What we have to do in that case is to turn back to God and to make things right if we can, but he is faithful and just to forgive us and to put us back on the right path again. Nonetheless, we can and we should pray that God deliver us from trials and keep them from tripping us up. We should pray that he deliver us from anything that would tear, tear us away from his love. But we're still going to be faced with trials and temptations. That's a given. So let's look at a few approaches we can use to get through them, uh, just to try to be helpful. The first approach is the just say no approach. You remember this one? Yeah? For those who don't, in 1982, a schoolgirl asked First Lady Nancy Reagan what she should say if somebody offered her drugs. And Nancy responded, just say no. Uh, that's a picture of Nancy up on the screen there. Uh, the slogan caught on like wildfire. It became the basis for drug programs, drug prevention programs like DARE nationwide. It's sensible, it's easy to remember, and it doesn't work. In 2014, Scientific American published an article that discussed various studies of this kind of method. Not only does just say no not prevent school children from smoking and drinking, but some studies showed slightly increased smoking and drinking among students who'd gone through the D.A.R.E. program. You know, I've heard the same thing about resisting temptation. Just say no. And I guess if you think of sin and righteousness as just following the rules or breaking the rules, that's a reasonable approach, but it's not sustainable and it's not going to make you happy. I mean, ultimately, we do have to say no to temptation, but it's a heart issue. It's not simple, and it's much more than just a slogan. So, okay, so approach number one may be not the best. Approach number two, if you can't say no, then maybe you can have someone restrain you? <laughs> this is what I call the batten down the hatches approach. There's a Greek myth of Odysseus, who's a hero coming home from the Trojan War. His boat has to pass by an island where the sirens lived. The sirens were creatures with lovely voices who lured sailors to their deaths with their song. Their island was littered with the bodies of the sailors they had enticed. 
Now, Odysseus wanted to hear the siren's song, O Lord, lead me into temptation. But he did not want to die, obviously, so he took wax and he stopped up the ears of the guys on the boat with him, and he had them tie him to the mast. He said, whatever happens, even if I beg to be released, which he did, just tie me up all the tighter. Now, he made it through that temptation. And I guess we could use that strategy if we wanted to as well, but I can't imagine living life like that. You know, it's like, hey, where's Rod? <laughs> He's down at the mast again. <laughs> That's not fun. Well, so on the other side of things is the just give in strategy. After all, I mean, saying no is a lot of work. How about we just try a bit of everything, and that way we can find what works for each of us? The poet William Blake had a philosophy kind of like that, you know, kind of anything that's worth doing is worth doing to excess sort of thing. Um, but this approach completely ignores the devastating impact that sin can have, and it completely ignores the fact that God's given us some pretty clear guidelines in the Bible. Following those guidelines leads to a life filled with love and joy and freedom. They've been tested and proven over thousands of years, so why would we ignore that? Oscar Wilde, by the way, was a brilliant and funny writer who led a life filled with excess and scandal. He died broke and disgraced at the age of 46. So maybe strategy number three is not a great strategy either. I'd like to propose another alternative. How about we be filled with a passion for Jesus? As we draw near to Jesus and as we let him fill our hearts, there's less and less room for the things that are not Jesus. If we're motivated to draw near to Jesus, it becomes a lot easier to say no to those things that would drag us away. Because actually we're moving towards something positive. Thomas Chalmers rose, was, was a famous Scottish preacher in the 1800s, and he wrote a wonderful little book, it's actually one of his sermons, called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. He says that we're never going to be able to get rid of our sinful desires just by saying no. And he was more than 100 years before Nancy Reagan. Um, he says that would leave us empty and miserable. True enough. And sermons about the evils of the world will never convince us. What Chalmers says is that the only way to unseat an old, unhelpful desire is to replace it with a new and more beautiful desire. And we will naturally gravitate toward that new beauty. For Christians, of course, the more beautiful desire is Jesus. There's an old Christian song that goes like this. It says, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I see a few nodding heads like, yeah, I know that song. Yeah. It sounds kind of cliche, and in fact it is, but that is the strategy that will work. And the funny thing is that the data actually backs this last approach up. I happen to know a brilliant secular psychologist. He's not a Christian, but he spent much of his professional life investigating motivation and how it works in people. I have a number of his publications. 
that's my dad. Uh, in fair disclosure, most of what he's written is beyond my understanding. But I am going to rip just a few of his findings completely out of context and apply them shamelessly to the topic at hand. For those of you who are wondering, yes, I did run this by him, and he said it's okay to do it. So finding number one, if you are trying to motivate a change in behavior, it's powerful when you can tie the desired behavior into something that you're internally motivated to achieve. It sounds like big words, right? But what you want to do is if you've got something, a, a behavior that you want to do more of, and there's something that it will help you get that you really want, if you can link those two, that makes it much more powerful. In a Christian context, and this is my words, of course, not his, if you actually desire to draw near to God and you sense the value of God's love, it becomes much easier to say no to the things that will drag you away. It seems kind of common sense, right? Finding number two, shoulds and oughts aren't very effective motivators. As a guy who's been around churches now for quite some time, uh, you know, that was like in 20-point font on the page. It's like, yeah, I get that. It's not I should do this. It's not I ought to do that. It's I want this, and I'm going to pursue that. Finding number three, when you're setting up a goal, it's much more effective to move towards something good than away from something bad. So we pray, you know, Lord, don't lead us into temptation. And a lot of times we can get focused on the temptation. i got to get away from that. Um, but the people who spend their time getting away from things tend to be much more negative and less satisfied with their lives than the people who are moving towards something positive. So, for instance, um, you know, don't get angry with my wife is a much less powerful motivator than, you know, I really want to strengthen my marriage and have a peaceful and loving relationship. If you're moving toward that peace, you're not going to get angry as often. Or um, draw close to God and experience peace and love. If you actually believe that it's achievable, is a much more effective motivation than I don't want to get bonked over the head again when I get on God's bad side. Now, in fair disclosure again, you know, fear of getting bonked over the head and getting on God's bad side has kept me from doing some really boneheaded things. You know, there, there's a place for different motivations, but overall, being filled with a passion for Jesus is a really good approach to avoiding temptation. The more we want him, the more we seek him, the less we're going to want what's not him. So you are all asking, I'm sure in your hearts, it's like, okay, so how do I get that passion? That is the one thing I cannot tell you. How's that for a downer? <laughs> Great sermon, Rod. Yeah. God, though, can give us that passion, and he wants us to ask for it. So I would like to do that with all of us. Can we do that? All right, so if you feel comfortable with it, grab the hand of somebody next to you. If you don't, that's okay, really, honestly. Um, but Jesus, fill us with a passion for your name. Fill us with a passion for you, Lord. 
for your love, for your hope, for your joy and your peace. Fill us, Lord, because that's what you want to do and our hearts desperately long for that. Come, Lord, be glorified in our hearts today because you've poured yourself into them. Amen. Now, my dad said something in conversation one day which I thought was really profound. And for him, I think it was just kind of a throwaway statement. But he said that one of the biggest disappointments of structured motivational counseling was that the patients needed continual check-ins and redirection from their therapists. Without the check-ins, they tended to fall back into their old behaviors rather quickly. He'd hoped that once patients learned how to link a desired behavior to something that they want, that they would become more self-sustaining. But that seems to me to be just kind of human nature, isn't it? To me, in the Christian context, it points to the importance of church. We need to invest ourselves in a community where there's solid teaching and where there's loving relationships. We need to be continually reminded to make Jesus first in our lives, and we can't do that alone. Now, church can't create a passion for Jesus, but church can give an opportunity for that passion to grow, and it can help us stay on the path and to grow deeper and stronger in our faith. Now with that, why don't we have the worship team come on back up? We've taken these few verses kind of back to front. But as we close out the sermon, I would like to come around full circle. You see, avoiding temptation and all that sort of stuff, we've got to do it. But we don't do it just because it's a good thing to do, and we don't do it just because we're going to get beat up if we don't. We do it because there is a God who loves us, who has redeemed us in Jesus and who calls us to himself. If you wouldn't mind standing this time, I'd like to pray over us just one more time. Lord, thank you for calling us to yourself. Thank you, Lord, for redeeming us. And we ask that you would drive your truth and a passion for you deep into our hearts this morning. Holy Spirit, we give you free reign here today to do what you want because you are good. Lord, change us from the inside out and make us look more like you. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.